Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis and a warm welcome to Money Talk for Thursday the 5th of October. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. You can get in touch with any questions or comments by going to peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com or my Facebook page, which is also Peter Lewis Money Talk. Thank you for listening and making us one of the most downloaded financial podcasts in Hong Kong. In today's business and finance headlines, US private payrolls rose far below expectations in September. Payroll processing firm ADP said Wednesday 89,000 private payrolls were added last month. That's well below forecasts of 160,000 and less than an upwardly revised 180,000 payroll additions from August. The job gains came almost exclusively from services, which contributed 81,000 to the total. ADP also said annual wage growth slowed to 5.9%, the 12th consecutive monthly decline. The report comes ahead of the official jobs data from the US government, due for release tomorrow. Retail sales in the Eurozone fell at the fastest monthly pace of the year in August, underlying how high inflation and rising borrowing costs are squeezing consumer spending. Retail sales fell by 1.2% month-on-month in August, following an upwardly revised 0.1% decrease in July. It was the biggest month-on-month fall since December, according to Eurostat. And on a yearly basis, Eurozone retail sales fell by 2.1%. That marks the 11th consecutive month of contraction. The Bank of Japan carried out a series of unscheduled purchases of Japanese government bonds on Wednesday as yields on the benchmark 10-year instruments hit their highest in a decade. The Bank of Japan said it offered to buy around 4.5 billion US dollars worth of JGBs with maturities between 5 and 10 years, surprising markets. The move came as the yield on the 10-year JGB edged three basis points higher to 0.8%. That's its highest since September 2013. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities in Seoul. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. U.S. stocks notched their biggest one-day gain in several weeks on Wednesday as the recent sell-off in Treasuries that has pushed yields to multi-year highs stalled. The S&P 500 added 0.8% and closed at 4,264. The Dow snapped a three-day losing streak, climbing 127 points or 0.4% to close at 33,130. The Nasdaq Composites that gained 1.4% at 13,236. The CBOE Volatility Index, also known as Wall Street's fear gauge, fell by over one point in Wednesday's session to under 19. On Tuesday, the index hit a high above 20, not seen since May amid the market sell-off. U.S. Treasury yields have retreated from 16-year highs after the weak U.S. jobs data. Initially, the yield on the 10-year note added as much as six basis points to a new 16-year high of 4.85% in Asian trading, but gave up those gains in New York trading following the jobs data, and it ended the session eight basis points lower at 4.72%. Oil prices notched their steepest fall in more than a year on Wednesday, erasing gains from the past month. Brent crude oil fell 5.6% to settle at $85.81 a barrel, its sharpest decline since August 2022. The US dollar index was slightly weaker, trading around the 107 level on Wednesday, but still close to the highest levels since November last year. 
Japanese yen remained below the politically sensitive 150 level after breaching it for the first time in nearly a year on Tuesday. On Wednesday in Tokyo, the currency slipped 0.2% before ending the New York session at 149.05 Japanese yen per US dollar. Asian stocks slumped on Wednesday, following a sell-off on Wall Street the prior day. South Korea led Asian markets lower, with the Cosby tumbling 2.4%, weighed down by electronics and consumer services stocks. Australia's ASX 200 fell 0.8%, and in Japan, the Nikkei 225 dropped 2.3%. Hong Kong stocks extended their losses from Tuesday, when the Hang Seng tumbled almost 3%. On Wednesday, the Hang Seng lost another 135 points, or 0.8%, to a near 11-month low of 17,196. Embattled property developer China Evergrande tumbled 12.2% in Hong Kong after surging 28% one day earlier. Financial markets in mainland China are closed this week for the Golden Week holiday, but futures markets are pointing to a slight rebound for Hong Kong stocks at the open. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 40 points, that's 0.2% higher, at around about 17,230. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find as always at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On this Thursday morning, let's welcome our guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Morning. And also with us from Seoul is Peter Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities in South Korea. Morning, Peter. Good morning. Well, let's try and make some sense of what's going on in the markets, if we can. The route in U.S. Treasuries did intensify initially yesterday morning in Asian trading as investors digested messaging that the Federal Reserve intends to leave interest rates higher for longer to rein in inflation. The yield on the 10-year note hit a new 16-year high of 4.85% um, at one stage. On Wednesday, yields across the whole U.S. Treasury curve jumped to their highest levels in over a decade. The US 30-year breached 5% at one stage for the first time since 2007, back before the financial crisis, but then it slipped back following the ADP jobs report. Andrew, what on earth is going on? What's happening in the bond yields seems to be affecting, uh, in the treasury bond markets, seems to be affecting everything. Bonds around the globe, stocks, the US dollar. Um, Can you explain for us what's happening? Well, actually, I can't because there are several huge contradictory movements in the markets. And it's not a matter of me lifting my hands in the air and saying I I cannot explain anything. Uh, All I can think is that it appears to me completely useless to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to gauge when and where the Fed is going to increase interest rates. Because the answer is, is any questions you get, you get contradictory answers. For example, how it is possible simultaneously for the stock markets and the bond markets in the States to com- to collapse. Forget what has happened yesterday with, uh, with the S&P going up a little bit. You know, the other parties, we had widespread increases in yields. Now, at the same time, the US dollar is strong. Well, hello, hang on a minute. Why on earth am buying US dollars at the same time as I'm massively selling US dollar assets? I'll say that very slowly. We are all collectively the millennials in the market are selling US dollar denominated assets and everybody else is apparently buying the US dollar. Mm. Presumably they cash out and they put it in deposits. I can't think of anything else. 
So this is completely crazy. You cannot you cannot have that simultaneously, and that's a fact. That's not a that's, that's not a hypothesis. Okay. So I, in a sense, I feel like saying, "Allow you guys make up your mind." You know, you don't like U.S. dollar assets because interest rates are increasing; they're going to stay very high. So you sell them and then you hold on to U.S. dollar. And at the same time, of course, you just had just in time the Congress once again make it in time to fund and also at the same time the treasury market went up by one trillion because of course the fiscal deficit in the united states continues to increase so it is it is really really weird so i prefer not to waste time on that because what what kind of an explanation can i have can i give you other than move on to an existential issue and say you know life is very absurd uh, life is completely contradictory. Let's stick to something that makes a lot of sense. Let's find some sectors and some shares that make some sense to buy and concentrate on that and live outside these uh, gross, huge movements. Let alone the fact, and I finish very quickly, that two of the major economies in the world are cutting interest rates, cutting interest rates or keeping them very low, and the other two increasing them. Hello? Mm. Uh, wh what do we have? Japan and uh, the, the People's Bank of China are keeping interest rates down and the European Union, European Central Bank and the Fed are increasing them. So anybody that tells me that central banks are increasing interest rates, I'll say, no, they are not if you're in Asia. Well, Peter, you're an investment strategist. You're the head of research, so you can't get away with not having an explanation. How do you, <laughs> how do you explain what's going on? I think uh, Andrew uh, has uh, touched upon a good point. Uh, that the increased retail participation uh, in markets definitely has uh, uh, led to a divergence in correlation of the historical uh, uh, past. However, probably I can point to a couple more reasons. Uh, one is that uh, we are not in that typical global synchronized economic cycle uh, where if the U.S. is feeling good, the rest of the world feels better. Uh, if the U.S. is sinking into a recession, everybody eventually falls into recession. Uh, that's definitely not the case this time. Uh, you have U.S. in a reasonable shape, despite the recent market jitters. Uh, however, uh, China, second largest economy, is in a, what they consider to be a early signs of deflation. Uh, and Europe, uh, the other re region, being what seems to be an early signs of stagflation. And then, of course, we have Japan, which has been mired in decades of deflation and, and low growth, one economy that's actually starting to grow. So from a historical perspective, that's a, a key difference this time around. Mm. And I guess uh, one more reason I can probably point to is that uh, equity market and bond market has shown divergence for a while now. Uh, and I think uh, for mass media in particular to try to microanalyze timeline of a week or, or two days or even a month is uh, probably uh, not something that uh, uh, points to a consistent correlation anyway. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I always find it amusing when I see the media headlines saying market, like the oil, right? Um, it's like the biggest drop uh, since whatever year it was, which I totally ignore. I said, I don't know what that means. Like biggest drop in since April or biggest rise since May. I mean, these are daily commentaries, which I find totally meaningless. Uh, it it, it uh, forces investors to overreact in the very short term. 
Uh, and, and I think uh, uh, not you, of course, Peter, but uh, a lot of other media commentators are, are to fall for that. Mm. But and, Andrew, I mean, what's part of the explanation, maybe, and, and I think Peter's touching on this here, is we're, we're sort of having to get used to a new normal, aren't we, where rates are now um, above 5% and are, and are going to stay there. Now, of course, for you and I, there's nothing abnormal at all about rates um, at 5%. We've seen it many times. It used to be perfectly normal before the global financial crisis. It's just that in recent years, and, and, and anyone who hasn't been in the market uh, longer than about a decade hasn't seen this um, before. So is this part of the problem? They're having to adjust uh, to what is a, a new reality now of higher rates and just how much that changes everything. Yeah, actually, Peter, I have to be incredibly careful here because uh, the last thing I want <clears throat> is to turn around and to say, potentially the majority of the people that are trading in the markets, the majority, okay, uh, or rather the large minority are millennials. Uh, those people that were born in the year 2000. And they haven't a clue what has happened if you go back to the year 2000. I was recently in a conference where we were discussing technology, artificial intelligence, the applications of those thereon, you know, the usual boring stuff. And it was clear to me that the majority of the people contributing there hadn't a clue what has happened in the year 2000, 2001, when internet made its first appearance. And mm. when this was the best thing since sliced bread, it was going to change completely our lives, which it did, but not overnight. Okay. And it was a, a staged process. And then I, I have the suspicion that around the year 2008, when the majority of the millennials would have been about eight years old, okay, interest rates went down to zero, and then they stayed there forever. Now, mm. last year only, remember, the Fed started to increase in March 2022. It was not increasing, uh, you know, for five years now going up. So they are all nearly 24, and it is the first time ever since their living memory that interest rates are going up. Mm. That's, it's, that's an unusual you know, but it is sort of claiming that the grey hairs have got the truth, whereas the millennials are the young morals that they haven't a clue of what is going on. But I can't, I can't possibly escape that feeling. And I have to shut my mouth because I don't want to say, look, I know much better than you do, because I don't. Okay, simply I have lived longer than you do, but that's hardly a, that's hardly a, it's like saying my father used to advise me by starting and saying, Son, I'm older than you. And I said, Dad, usually parents are older than their children. I mean, what kind of an advice is that? Mm. Well, but Peter, it's interesting. You know, Andrew raised we started to see um, rising rates last year. That was also a period when stocks and bonds declined together, wasn't it? Um, as interest rates rose, the Fed sort of said it was going to keep rates higher for longer. But isn't the problem now, though, that we've got more signals now that the economy might not hold up nearly as well going forward um, as it did um, last year? We are seeing, seeing signs of a slowdown, aren't we? And is this what is uh, impacting um, equity markets that people are fearing the Fed is going to tip us into a recession? Yeah, again, I think um, uh, for the uh, first time in a while, the FOMC has been pretty consistent in maintaining its sticky inflation and therefore uh, sustained inflation rates. I think it's a equity market and bond market that second guess that claim by thinking that uh, they're going to turn dovish sooner. Uh, and uh, they overreacted and uh, they're making that uh, readjustment in my mind uh, mm. back to the FOMC's guidance. 
Um, as far as the correlation, once again, between the two markets, again, I think it's maybe, I still believe that it's a matter of uh, a timeline rather than uh, a, a permanent correlation breaking down. Um, you know, everyone focuses on the correlation that happened overnight uh, rather than uh, a correlation that sustains over maybe 12 months, which nobody has the patience for nowadays, uh, as Andrew mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally believe that the uh, U.S. inflation is not as bad as the one we've seen in Europe, but certainly it is sticky. Uh, and the uh, the guidance for a uh, rate hike uh, being sustained, maybe not higher, but at least not no cuts happening for a while, uh, is probably the correct one. As far as the equity market goes, um, equity market is as short term as you can get. Um, and uh, I, a lot of the millennials are my uh, clients, increasingly becoming my clients. So I cannot be too critical, <laughs> but um, they're so uh, even the institutional managers are under so much pressure to deliver short term returns. Uh, even the ones that has historically been famous for long-term investors, uh, they constantly being squeezed into uh, 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 providing short-term returns, and that uh, uh, makes it into a uh, herd mentality. Mm. Andrew, when the Fed is raising rates like this, it does historically have a tendency to to overdo it, doesn't it, and then uh, try and correct that later. But we are seeing signs now of stresses um, in the economy because companies, they're going to have to roll over trillions of dollars of existing debt at, at much, much higher rates in the next uh, 12 to 24 months. So we're going to see a lot more bankruptcies going on. Consumer credits, I mean, that's just at levels now. The interest rates make that just completely um, unsustainable. We're seeing it in the commercial markets as well. Commercial credit availability is contracting now uh, for the first time since the financial crisis. We are seeing signs of stress, aren't we? Uh, we are, and strangely enough, actually, this is my, my next favourite peeve. If that is the case, why the hell is it not priced into the markets? In other words, there are two things here. Uh, you are absolutely right. Now, we all know that we're going to have higher interest rates for the next 12 months. Why the hell is not inflation coming down to zero? In other words, why people continue to increase prices, continue to ask for higher wages, given, of course, that we are now are all expecting things to stay very grim. And the answer is, is because, of course, markets, to my experience, is never price anything in at all. Otherwise, the markets would already be pricing in the fact that in a year's time, interest rates will be coming down. Hey, we only mm. need to wait another 12 months. And then all our fears about having to refinance everything we are having now, it's going to get significantly better because the Fed will start cutting by 25 basis points every other month. Why, why we're, not, we're, not, we're not seeing that? And the answer is, is because we never had. I'm sorry, I'll stick my neck out completely. I have never seen any conclusive proof that markets price anything in. They simply react to what is happening. Mm. And they say, well, you know, the prices, the markets have actually priced in the fact that. The fact that what? Interest rates will remain high. Well, why are they not pricing the fact that in a year's time, in all probability, interest rates will start coming down? Well, Sorry, this is, a, this is a rhetorical question. Again, I've got the answer to that. Is, is, it is like that because markets don't price these things in. Mm-hmm. And yes, you're absolutely right. They are scared now. They are peeing in their pants. If you pardon this uh, financial expression. Okay, <laughs> is that they have to uh, re- refinance uh, uh, loans at a much higher interest rate. 
Mm. I mean, that's Equally, the- I will tell you, we had since the year 08, year 08 till the year 22, I'll say that slowly, of zero interest rates. We had several tens, okay, several fives and fives and fives of years that were paying zero interest rates. Well, now we might have for about a year and a half pay higher interest rates. We're not going to die, but mm-hmm. apparently we do. Okay. Well, Peter, maybe one thing you can help explain is is that the markets don't seem to have priced properly is all the jobs data and the and the violent reactions we're seeing to that. We first of all on Wednesday had the Jolts survey, the job opening survey, uh, which was better than expected, far more job openings than people thought. Equities tumbled, bond yields surged. Then last night we had the ADP data, uh, which was pointing in the opposite direction, showing a tight uh, that the the labour market was starting to to often far less uh, jobs created than thought now everyone's on tender hooks waiting for tomorrow when we get the official jobs data why is this so much in focus um so two reasons one reason that i already mentioned that um everyone is so focused on short-term data mm. uh, um uh, and that the uh, slightest changes in data people overreact and try to take out too much um meaning out of them and i think uh, uh that's one uh reason and second one is uh, uh, from a broader perspective um you know i blame a lot of this on deglobalization um the the labor market in the u.s is very different from labor market we've seen europe and china uh, and that's because the uh, labor mobility has been shuttered uh from rising um uh anti-immigration movement around the world uh, trade has been shut, uh, uh, been derailed uh, through obviously trade war and rising tariffs and government subsidies. So um, after what 40 years of uh, a, a mega trend of globalization and free trade, we've had uh, a reverse, and and we've only seen two three years of that. Uh, and I think the the inconsistency across data that we've been used to being consistent, I think we that's the new normal. We'll have to get used to it. Andrew, the other thing maybe you can help me try and understand, help our listeners understand, what is the significance of what's going on with the yield curve? Back in the summer, it was heavily inverted. In other words, uh, short-term rates were much higher than long-term rates. It got down to about minus 108 it's now uninverting or steepening anyway. It's down to now about minus 35. So about uh, two thirds uh, of that has now been unwound. And it could well be the yield curve will actually end up in positive territory again, steepening. But the only thing is this is happening because of the, what's going on at the long end. It's actually long end rates that are rising much faster than short end rates. So what, what's the reason behind this? And what should we take from that uh, in terms of maybe equity markets going forward? Now, okay, let me wear my gray hair wig and tell you going back 20 to 30 years, I remember that we used to be absolutely obsessed with the fact that an inverted yield curve always forecasts a recession. And it has done so, as uh, Peter would have said, in the last 25 occasions starting from the year 1945 and each time the yield curve inverted guess what after x number of quarters or x number of months the economy started slowing down so this is what is going to forecast and the answer is of course i was deeply suspicious of that not because i knew better but because the time range between the inversion and the decline in economic activity was so variable as to make it completely meaningless 
choose a number. Okay, as the magician says, choose a number, any number. And I say five, and the magician says, you are absolutely correct. <laughs> it, was, it was completely, completely absurd. So the answer is, is yes, we are all looking at the uninverted yield curve, and it simply tells you that people are worried that long-term interest rates are going to increase and stay high, okay, because of what has happened in the Fed. So now the yield curve is uninverted, despite the fact that not everything else is okay. Because then on the other hand, on the other side, and I'm explaining to you now, we have the crazy inconsistency that if the macroeconomic numbers are good, that's very good for the economy, very good for equities, Okay, very good for expected earnings, but terrible as far as interest rates is concerned. Mm -hmm. If the data are bad, okay, that's bad for the economy, but great for interest rates because they will be coming down. You know, this, 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 yeah, it is completely crazy. Okay, that, that's why my advice is stop looking at it. Concentrate <laughs> on areas where you can make some money by looking at some sectors and some firms and forget about what what the fed will or will not do and mm -hmm. the inversion of the yield curve is going now to tell you what that if the yield curve uninverts you have a booming expansion in the economy no it won't <laughs> peter try and put this all together for, for equity investors because you know m most of our listeners are equity uh, investors rather than bond investors what does this all mean for the equity markets what's going on in the bond markets what's happening with the yield curve what's happening with the us dollar maybe particularly out here in asia what does it mean for for asian equities um well uh, asian equities is clearly still very much dependent on china and that has been a big drag for the rest of the region uh and i don't see that changing and i think uh i mentioned during our last session uh, that China's uh, cons uh, real problem is not an economic one, but a political one. Uh, that, uh, again, uh, since then, uh, uh, first time in 30 years, a country that has uh, continued to promise, at least, uh, and deliver, uh, on most part, on market reform, reversing within two, three years. I mean, that's a, that's a huge change uh, for an economy uh, that, uh, that played in the, a free trade world. Uh, so I think uh, you can have to still uh, have to be uh, relatively bearish for Asian equities relative to the U.S., but may actually stack up better than Europe because if Europe uh, uh, feels this uh, inflation uh, alongside uh, with um, uh, slowing growth, that's a stagflation scenario. So I don't know whether... Uh, that's any better. Um, uh, again, um, I think uh, we have to be cautious uh, that the during this phase of uh, market realignment to reality, that uh, we will have uh, reasonably sticky inflation. Uh, uh, there is still uh, uh, reasonable liquidity in the U.S. that continues to drive up that market uh, on a firm footing on uh, macro that it sits on, but. Uh, Asia, I think we really have to continue to watch if China really maybe uh, softens its stance on the political front in order to uh, make the market function again. Mm, okay, interesting. Well, Andrew, the, the, I, I'm, this is all reminding me of a period that you might remember. There, I, I can think back, uh, there was a period where we had this before, where markets were ignoring warning signals, 
for quite a while. Investors were ignoring warning signals in the economy. We had rising interest rates, problems in the currency markets. That was back in 1987. And uh, I'm sure you'll remember how that all ended um, in in October. But we saw a similar set of things going on there. Do, Do you see any comparison um, I'm afraid not, not because history doesn't repeat itself, or this time is going to be different, because uh, both in the case of the United States and also in the case of the rest of the global markets, things did not exactly move as badly or as well as we think we remember, because, mm-hmm. of course, following that, the 87, we had the famous Asian crisis, the early 90s, which was neither an Asian nor a crisis. It was a crisis in South Korea, it was a crisis in Indonesia, it was a crisis in Malaysia, but it wasn't a crisis in India, in China, or for that matter in Hong Kong, or for that matter in Australia. So you are absolutely right in saying at that time we did this, this and that, and then if you take specifically what actually happened in individual markets in 87, you're going to find, for example, nothing happened in the Chinese market because it was not an important market at the time and it was definitely not open to foreign investment. Okay, Uh, Mm. ditto in the case of Japan. So I'm I'm a little bit reluctant to say, yes, we have seen all this because then I will be putting again my wig with my gray hair and saying, you know, I remember all this is clearly happening because actually it didn't. <laughs> all right. Well, we won't try and go back to the 1920s and see if there's any comparisons there. <laughs> Peter, before we go, I just want to ask you about South Korean stocks. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, could the South Korean market be the next Japan? Um, I mean, Japan's obviously had a whole series of tailwinds behind it, which have helped, including obviously uh, a a very weak um, currency, um, but that's helped. Uh, boost profit margins for, for companies and also it's had all these corporate reforms going on um, to try and uh, sort of make corporate governance better um, in, in Japan and that's also helped give a boost. Um, we haven't really seen South Korean markets, South Korean stocks do the same thing, but uh, could they? Could they be the next Japan? Um, there are some similarities but also differences. Uh, similarities are that uh, we are export driven, we are politically aligned with the US, um, our domestic consumption is growing um, to a reasonable point where it, it's increasingly less dependent on exports. So those are similarities but uh, the differences are uh, something uh, on the demographic front. Japan used to be the world champion of uh, lowest birth rates, and South Korea now takes that spot by quite a margin. Um, the uh, We have tried to grow new industries like uh, entertainment industry led by K-pop. Uh, and, uh, batteries is a good uh, rising industry. Uh, so we have a reasonable chance to maybe not as... Uh, um, uh, to the extent, but uh, uh, to follow the lead, because uh, South Korean government is always uh, cognizant of what the Japanese neighbors are doing, uh, they, and they, it's a very good motivation for them to follow. However, uh, 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 reality is is that Japan went through this uh, 30 years of low growth before finally making the recovery. Uh, and I guess uh, South Korea is maybe... Um, only a few years into that type of a phase, 
So um, I would I would have to say that South Koreans would have to work very hard, both at the policy front, at the industry level, uh, to try to uh, uh, duplicate what Japan is going through. Okay. Well, very interesting discussion this morning. Thank you both very much indeed. You heard there Peter Kim, who's Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities in Seoul, and Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory and our regular Thursday correspondent. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei in Taiwan. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Um, I want to kick off by asking you about Huawei because they've been very much in the news because they're setting up this own, their own shadow network of chip makers with, with tens of billions of dollars in Chinese government support. Um, and key Taiwan tech firms have, have been helping uh, Huawei with their, with their chip plants. Now, that's caused some, uh, this this, uh, some concern in, in various circles. But what's going on there? Yeah, the news uh, which was reported by Bloomberg was that they, they had visited the construction site of uh, Huawei-related chip plants in, in China. And uh, to their surprise, they saw uh, people on the work site who were sporting uh, the names and logos of Taiwan companies. Now, when the Taiwan companies were asked about this, some declined to comment, but some said, hey, whoa, time out there. We're, we're not uh, transferring chip technology. We're, we're helping to build the plants. You know, we do things like uh, water systems or environmental engineering related works uh, for tech industry plants. And that, that's kind of a niche that some Taiwan companies have because they're supporting Taiwan's tech industry. So they know how to do that. They know how to help you build the plant. But again, these companies were saying, well, we're not, we're not transferring any uh, technology or chip making technology uh, to uh, the, our clients in China. We're just helping them build a factory. Whatever happens in the factory afterwards, it's none of our business. Uh, so some might call this a gray area. Uh, it, it's not specifically prohibited by all those U.S. blacklist restrictions, et cetera, that have been issued in recent years. Uh, some might call it a, a loophole. Uh, the Taiwan government said if they really were only uh, doing the things that they claim to be doing, that's not in violation of Taiwan's own restrictions either. Uh, however, I would expect because of the the news or the attention that this got, uh, partly because it was in Bloomberg and then it got picked up by everyone else, uh, I would expect either the U.S. or Taiwan to look again at, at their existing uh, restrictions and see if they might look into whether or not they could expand it out to what, what these companies were doing. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the ultimate result here. Well, the, the fact is, though, isn't there, that Taiwanese companies do have big presence on, on the mainland. I mean, look at Foxconn. Um, you know, it's actively assembling up s smartphones um, there. And you could say it's helping, uh, uh, helping China uh, along the way. There's not an awful lot of difference, is there? Sure. Uh, you know, Taiwan's most important trading partner is China. And uh, it, it's, it's a great location for, for Taiwan companies to make money. Uh, that, that's just a fact. Uh, so there'll definitely be some tension. Uh, there'll be people here in Taiwan who also say, well, slow down there. Why are we even restricting engineering companies from doing business in China just because, or, or in the chip industry just because it's the sensitive chip industry? They're still just 
construction works, engineering, et cetera, types of companies. Uh, we'll, we'll see how this plays out I, I, again, though. I, I think there's going to be some pressure, uh, not necessarily from the public or the media, but from the United States uh, on, on the Taiwan government. And I expect them uh, to ultimately come down on the side of if it's a factory that's making something restricted, then you can't be helping them make the factory either. <laughs> right, sure. Is, is it, have it causing any sort of backlash um, in Taiwan? Because obviously you're preparing for uh, a presidential election in January and Taiwan's rocky relationship with China is, is a pivotal um, issue in that. So is this having any, um, any attention and any backlash? Well, it certainly got, this story certainly did get a lot of attention. Uh, the panels on talk shows have been talking about it nonstop uh, since Bloomberg first broke this story. Uh, but it, by backlash, if you mean that uh, people are saying, well, you got to let industry make money, we shouldn't give in to the United States. I haven't seen that. Uh, and again, it, it's partially because I, I think the expectation is, as I said, that eventually Taiwan's government will probably restrict companies uh, from helping to build factories if, if what's going to be made in the factory is, or, is something that's restricted. Mm, I saw comments from a professor of electri electrical engineering at the National Taiwan University. He said these suppliers are sacrificing other Taiwanese people's security to, to make a profit. Is, is that a, a widely held view? I don't think so, because when, when the news, you know, the headlines seem to make it out like these Taiwan companies were transferring technology that's restricted. And then in, you know, in subsequent explanation, you know, because those of us who aren't in the industry, we might just have assumed that they were helping Huawei make chips. But then subsequent news, you know, clarify what these companies are doing. And, and they're more on the engineering side or building the factory side of, of things. So I, I think people here are also sympathetic to uh, an engineering company doing its thing and, and that people recognize that they're not uh, transferring technology. So that professor's quote, uh, I also saw it. My first reaction was, I, I think he's exaggerating a little bit if we're only talking about a company that was building, um, you know, putting in the piping to remove wastewater and things like that. And, and uh, just as a matter of law, it, it's not restricted what they were doing. Um, mm. it, you know, it's, like I said, maybe it's a gray area, but I, I, I think the legal answer is that this was permitted. The political answer, again, it remains to be seen if new regulations will come out that restrict this. Now, obviously, it'll be interesting to see if this becomes an issue in the, the presidential election. But how, how are things going in the campaigning for that? We've got four candidates, haven't we? The, the DPP, the main opposition party, the KMT, and then two independent candidates. What, what are they doing? How are they faring? Well, right now, William Lai, uh, uh, who is the incumbent vice president, he's also the incumbent chairman of the DPP. Uh, he has consistently had a poll lead. Uh, some polls, uh, low 30s, sometimes it's in the mid 30s, sometimes it's in the high 30s. Uh, there's rarely a poll that shows him with more than 40%. Uh, but because uh, the, the opposition candidates are fractured, as you said, among multiple candidates, uh, two of them usually poll in, in around 20%, plus or minus 2%. And then the fourth candidate, uh, Terry Go uh, of Foxconn, Honhai fame, uh, he usually polls around 8 or 9%, but he's not an official candidate yet. He's still gathering uh, signatures on petitions in order to qualify as an independent candidate. In fact, there was some interesting news yesterday. Despite his fame, despite his wealth, uh, he, despite the respect the public might have for him as a businessman, he's actually having trouble gathering signatures. You know, he's kind of 
he's got to get about 290,000 signatures in the next few weeks in order to qualify as an independent candidate. So that's still not a guarantee. Uh, but whether it's three candidates or four candidates that are going to be on the ballot, if the opposition remains split, if they're going to split the 60 percent of the vote that is not going to go to uh, William Lai, then William Lai is going to easily win, though, uh, two, two things that listeners should keep in mind going forward. If he wins with 40 percent or 38 percent, that's hardly a mandate and uh, he might struggle to govern. And then the other issue is simultaneous to the presidential election is a legislative election. And for the last eight years, the DPP has had a majority in the legislature. Uh, but as of now, it's it, it looks unlikely that they'll retain that. So if there's a DPP president with a fractured legislature that's made where, where the majority is actually some amalgamation of opposition uh, legislators, it's going to make it really hard for him to govern as well. Have the two main parties, the, the DPP and the KMT, set out what their vision is of Taiwan going forward and should, and should they win? And have they also set out uh, what type of relationship they see with mainland China? Well, for the most part, the, the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang or KMT, as people sometimes call it, uh, their vision for the relationship with China is still based on the 1992 consensus where each side says, uh, I'm China, and uh, they kind of try to get along on that basis. And that was kind of the basis of Ma and Joe's policies when he was president from 2008 to 2016. And the DPP says, well, you know, we'd love to talk to China, but we're not going to do so on the basis of the 92 consensus. We don't believe in that. Uh, and, and China says, well, we won't talk to you if you don't support the 1992 consensus. So there's been no government to government interaction between uh, Taiwan and, and China uh, over the past seven plus years uh, because they don't see eye to eye on what the basis for that should be. Uh, when it comes to every other issue except China, it's, it's often hard to see a big difference between the parties. Yeah, they're both uh, kind of left of center, even if the, the KMT might make claims to be a right of center party or a conservative party. But when it comes to most other issues, such as uh, uh, child care subsidies or building more public housing or rent subsidies for young families. I mean, both of these parties, are, like I said, they're left of center and pretty much they're just always in a race to, 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 to the goal of who could spend more money to buy more votes. And what is the main issue for, for voters? Is it relations with China or are there other things that are, are top of their concern? All the economy, like, like any democratic election, the economy is, is a big part. Uh, wa wages uh, are, are stagnant or wage growth is stagnant. It's a perennial issue here in Taiwan. The cost of housing have, uh, continues to spiral up. So that's a perennial issue. The cost of childcare keeps going up uh, the, with, a, with a declining birth rate. So the candidates, again, they're, they're going to uh, be offering all sorts of goodies to entice people to vote for them, mostly in the form of government subsidies for this or that. Uh, but but the econ economic issues are certainly going to be important. Public safety is, is a bit of an issue as well. I, I don't want the listeners to think that Taiwan is dangerous. It's not, certainly not for tourists. Uh, but but uh, crime does make its way into the news, whether it's, it's in the form of uh, uh, violence perpetrated by organized crime. Sometimes it's related to public sector corruption. Uh, but but uh, public safety is also an issue.
Now, finally, what's going on in the South China Sea? We've, we've seen reports of Chinese ships sort of walling off almost part of the, the Chinese Sea and then confronting Philippine uh, fishing vessels. What, what's happening there with tensions between... Sort and of- there's also an issue that, uh, an incident, I should say, that got into the news over the past 24 hours of a, uh, an oil tanker that struck a Filipino fishing vessel and unfortunately uh, three crew members uh, died in this accident, and that's still under investigation by the Philippines authorities. Uh, When Marcos ran for president, he was kind of silent or tried to avoid talking about China issues. It seemed like he was going to follow uh, the path of uh, the former president, Duterte, and get along with China and not make a big issue out of the uh, competing sovereignty claims and try and focus more on, on the business issues. And, and Marcos started out governing that way, but as time has gone on, uh, now that he's been in office uh, a year plus, uh, he, you know, the, the actions speak for themselves. Uh, he's uh, made more bases available for the United States to forward deploy uh, equipment. Um, he's allowed the Philippines to participate in numerous military exercises with the United States and other friendly countries. Uh, One of the things that the Philippines has been doing recently is granting media, including global media, access to their ships, uh, Philippine Coast Guard or Navy ships, uh, join them on their patrols in the South China Sea, where they get to go up close with the Chinese Coast Guard, which tries to chase away the Filipino vessels. So it it certainly would be fair to say that Marco seems to to be taking a much tougher line on China than most of us expected. However, he does balance that continuously. You know, for, so you know, the typical example would be when, when, when Philippines announces that they're going to grant more base access to the United States. The next sentence has always been, but this is not directed at any country, and this is mostly for humanitarian relief. Uh, so I think the policy towards China is still very much in flux. And also there's pressure from ASEAN as well, where uh, you know, they try to stay unified, uh, and they try to get along with China. Uh, so whether or not this is are really going to be a get tough on China policy of Marcos for the next uh, five years of his presidency, uh, or it's just a moment in time for now for for getting more or building a relationship with the United States. I still think it remains to be seen because economically, just like most of ASEAN, I mean, the Philippines is, is going to be tethered to China. Okay, Ross, thank you very much. Always good to talk to you. That's Ross Feingold, who's Business Development Director at SafePro Group in Taipei. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com on tomorrow's show. I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Kenny Wen, Head of Investment Strategy at KGI Asia. Also with me will be Tony Nash, the founder of Complete Intelligence. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk.